What's up, everybody? Greetings and salutations. It is Wednesday, July 26th. I'm Spencer Man, and this is a question for every fight for UFC 291, Salt Lake City, the Delta Center, home of the Utah Jazz. This Saturday, headlined by Dustin Poirier and Justin Gaethje. We start there. We dive right in. My question for the main event is why do we have to have the dumb BMF title thing here? Like, why do we have to do this? A fight between Dustin Poirier and Justin Gaethje sells itself. I don't think anyone is looking at this fight and thinking, you know what would make it better? If we put a ceremonial title that we haven't talked about or mentioned for the last several years on the line and maybe drag Jorge Masvidal out to wrap it around the way. It doesn't change anything. It doesn't do anything. This is still a number one contender fight where the winner is most likely going to be next in line to face Islam Makhachev if he defeats Charles Oliveira again in October. Not sure about if Oliveira wins. Probably do a trilogy bout between Islam and Charles. Charles has already beaten both, but we'll figure all of those parts out later. But in the here and now, and, and looking at Saturday, it just feels like this, this BMF title, which at the time it was created, was unnecessary and just a like ceremonial, nice way to appease Jorge Masvidal and Nathan Diaz and stick a belt on the main event of a Madison Square Garden show. Masvidal won. It then got, like, it It wasn't one of these, I'm going to use a wrestling analogy, and I know people will hate it, but it wasn't like it was some title that was constantly on the line, right? Where every time he walked out there, it was up for grabs. If it were, Kamaru Usman would have won it. And then Colby Covenant, I mean, Kamaru Usman would have won it. Leon Edwards would have taken it from him, and Leon would be walking around with it, but that's not how it's worked. Masvidal wanted it, went on the shelf, and now that Masvidal is retired, we've brought it back out. Elliot Marshall, when I was doing the Coach Conversation series, which is up on UFC.com right now, with him for this fight, mentioned the same thing. That the actual baddest MF on the planet, in his opinion, and one I agree with, is the top pound-for-pound fighter in the sport. So for me, that's Alexander Volkanovsky. He's not walking around here with the title. He doesn't need the BMF title. He's got the featherweight title and he's got the understanding of the MMA community that he is the BMF in this sport right now. Even if he is a super nice guy, right? He is he is the baddest MF in this sport right now. Most complete fighter, just out here crushing fools at featherweight. And it just feels to me like sticking this belt on this fight Almost in a way, for me, and again, as always, this is for me, my opinion, I know I'm an outlier. For me, it it deters from things a little bit. It, it detracts from things, excuse me, a little bit. Because I don't need the press, the, the pageantry of a made-up belt being stuck on the line between these two. Nothing was on the line when they fought on Fox in Glendale, Glendale Arizona, five years ago. And it was a phenomenal fight. Absolutely bonkers fight. Terrific fight won by Dustin Poirier in the fourth round. And this rematch, five years later, when they're both six and two since, having lost to the same men, Khabib Nurmagomedov and Charles Oliveira, each of them in championship fights, is still going to be an amazing fight. We get the added wrinkle, the added question 
of altitude. Justin Gagey trains at altitude. Dustin Poirier trains at sea level in South Florida at ATT. We get questions of who has improved, developed, honed their skills more since that first fight. We get questions about who each man man has been facing in the run-up to this and, and the level of competition they've faced. Is Dustin Poirier beating Conor McGregor a couple of times and Michael Chandler keep him in that sharpest of the bunch, top of the food chain in the lightweight division? Same with Justin Gaethje. Coming off a very good win over Rafael Fazeev, but before that, it was Chandler. Before that, it was guys that weren't quite at that apex level. And so for me, this is a fascinating enough fight without any ceremonial titles on the line. We don't need any additional decorative costume jewelry put into the mix here. It's fine. I get that there are some people that like this stuff, that are are roped in by this stuff, that are convinced that this means something. And that's fine to each their own. I hope you enjoy it. But for me, I just think we don't need to have it. You can promote this as two of the absolute best, most consistently entertaining, all action fighters on the planet today, stepping into the octagon for a rematch where their first fight was a fight of the year contender. One fight of the night that night was a fight of the year contender in 2018. This will be a fight of the year contender. And so I don't think for me, and I think for a lot of people in the industry, we don't need this title on the line. We can do away with it. Let this be the thing that gets retired. Let this be the end of the BMF title. Winner can have it, take it and put it on their mantle, and we can just be done with it. Co-main event, Jan Bojovic versus Alex Paheya. And my question is, can Bojovic remain perfect against ex-middleweights? So I talked to Jan yesterday for a story that'll be up on the UFC website sometime this week. And one of the things we touched on, and it was touched on in the UFC countdown series, excuse me, is that he's already faced three former UFC middleweights. Luke Rockhold, Jacare Souza, and Israel Adesanya. He's 3-0. Two of those guys were UFC champions, Rockhold and, and Izzy. Izzy at the time was undefeated and the middleweight champion. And, and Jacare was a strike force champion, as was Rockhold, and a perennial contender. And every time somebody came up, they got turned back. And when I asked him about it yesterday, one of the things he said was, I think there's this mindset of, I train with heavier guys in the gym and I spar with heavier guys in the gym. So it won't be an issue. As he said yesterday, and as as I echo here and agree with 100%, training is training. Fighting is fighting. It's a thing that I talk about when I do these coach conversations, when I have these discussions with colleagues, athletes, coaches, whoever. We talk all the time about the difference between Training and going live, they're two very different things. And I know a lot of people may not understand that, or it may be confusing as to why training and and the actual fight itself are so different in, in my estimation, in my eyes, and in the opinions of these people that I speak with. And it's just because there is a very different feel in the gym where that guy isn't trying, that man or woman, that training partner, isn't trying to take you out. They're there to help you. 
you're there to help each other. It's there to be a symbiotic relationship where everybody gets better and we build and we get ready for that night where we go out to the octagon and somebody tries to take your head off. And the adrenaline, the energy, the expenditure, they're all different. And so I think Bojovic is right that a bunch of these guys in the past, and, and we've seen it many times over, not just with Jan, think, oh, I go with bigger guys. I should be fine. Right? Light heavyweights that think about moving up to heavyweight. Ah, I go with heavyweights in the gym all the time. I should be fine. It's a different animal. It's a different beast. And I think the thing that I'm really looking forward to with this fight in regards to whether he can keep it going is that Alex Pejea is a gigantic human being. And 205 feels like, to me, the right weight class for him. More so than middleweight. I've talked to Alex before. His last several fights, I know how daunting the weight cut was and is for him to get down to 85. I say is because he would still like to go down at some point, deal with some unfinished business with Mr. Adesanya. But it'll be really interesting to me to see how Pahea looks coming in and if that tendency of, of Jan having success against these former middleweights continue because Pahea isn't your typical former middleweight, right? He's not... And not that any of the others were, but Israel was, right? Israel didn't make the full-on move. He just kind of went up. I'm sure if he went to 205 permanently, there would be a greater transformation. We didn't really see that with any of them. Luke Rockhold got a little bit bigger, but Luke is, is not a gigantic light heavyweight when he fights there. He's best suited for middleweight. Same with Jacques Ray. was a little later in his career, just decided I'm going up. This is where I'm going to be. I'm not going to cut weight. I want to see what Jan is able to do against a great big human being like Alex Pahea, who has thunder in his hands. However, he also has some holes in his grappling defense, as we've seen in the past. And I wonder if we get not necessarily a repeat of the fight with Adesonia, but a composite of that fight and maybe a little bit of the fight with Ronaldo Jacare Souza, where it was close, it was competitive. There were some moments that it felt like Bojovic could lose that fight, ends up coming out on the favorable side of a split decision win to propel himself forward into the division. He's trying to get back to a title fight. A win here, especially a convincing dominant win, likely puts him in a championship matchup with Yuri Prohashka whenever he is ready to return. As Jan said to me on Tuesday, that'll be a huge fight somewhere in Europe, but we'll get to that after Saturday. I'm looking forward to Saturday. This is a really interesting fight to me. It's probably more interesting to me than the main event, if I'm being truthful. Feature fight on the main card, Stephen Wonderboy Thompson versus Michelle Pahea. And my question is, will Pahea take a big step forward? I know that probably sounds a little weird and maybe a little dismissive of what he's done. 29 years old, five straight wins in the UFC. Shiny record in the UFC, six and two overall. But for me, there's not a ton of real substance there. So the wins are Zalim Amadiev, Chaos Williams, Nico Price, Andre Fialu, and Santiago Ponzinibbio. And with all due respect to Santiago Ponzinibbio, who I like a great deal, who is a lovely human being, he hasn't been the same since he returned. Andre Fialu's stock has certainly changed from that short notice victory for Pejea and that initial run that Fialu had. And this just feels like that moment where 
it feels similar to Kevin Holland, who we're going to get to in a little bit. But it feels like that moment of, great, you've done really well against guys outside of the top 15. You've done well against guys that you, quote unquote, should beat. Now you get a guy in the top 10 that even though he is 40 years old and isn't quite the athlete and the dynamic fighter that he was three, four, five years ago, Stephen Thompson is still an absolute handful in the octagon. And he is the kind of guy that if you go out there and think you're going to run through him and you think it's going to be easy, that's not going to happen. The people we've seen beat him are grapplers and wrestlers. We have not seen Michelle Pahea have any real interest in doing that. Guys that want to stand with Stephen Thompson still get picked apart by Stephen Thompson. And so for me, Saturday is that fight where if Pahea is going to be a guy, if he is going to be someone that we have to take seriously in the welterweight division and look at as a legitimate emerging contender, he wins on Saturday. Doesn't have to be dominant, doesn't have to be a finish. You go out and beat Stephen Thompson, it still means a great deal, even with Wonderboy being 40 years old now. You beat him, it means a lot. Let's see if he can do it. Lightweight matchup, Tony Ferguson versus Bobby Green. And my question is, how do we get guys like Ferguson to walk away? I don't say that easily. I don't say that because I want to see athletes stop competing all the time. I, I talk about it regularly, right? I'm not the guy that wants to come out here and say, hey, this person should retire. This person should do X because I'm not somebody that is stepping into that cage. I haven't walked in their shoes. So it's hard for me and it's it's unfair of me to sit here and tell somebody when they should stop doing what they're doing. But what my question is, is why aren't there more people in Tony Ferguson's life, in his corner, in his team, in his management that are sitting down with him and saying, listen, man, I just don't know if we should be doing this anymore. Tony Ferguson hasn't won a fight in more than four years. And that fight was against Donald Cowboy Cerrone, who ended his career on a seven fight losing streak with this fight being part of it. He was KO'd last May. He was subbed last September. And this past May, at 39 years old, he got a DUI where he flipped his truck. That doesn't feel like somebody that has everything sorted out and working in the right direction to be a top end or even a second 15 lightweight at the highest levels anymore. This feels to me like a situation either prior to this fight, if I had my druthers, or after this fight, because I do not think it goes well for him on Saturday, that someone, coaches, family, friends, management, needs to sit down with Tony Ferguson and say, look, man, you got one of the rawest deals and, and had some of the worst luck of any fighter in MMA history. The fact that he never fought for the undisputed lightweight title is absolutely still, to this day, mind-boggling. Right, We joked after he tripped over the electrical cord and it forced him out of UFC 209 against Khabib Nurmagomedov that like, what is it going to take? This fight is just never going to happen. And then it was set to happen and a global pandemic stopped it. It is really sad, truly, truly sad that he never fought for the lightweight title, the undisputed lightweight title, fought for the interim title, of course, won that. But I don't, I don't feel like there's, I'm worried. I'm scared about this fight. Not that I think anything necessarily terrible is going to happen on Saturday, 
but it feels to me like a guy that just hasn't come to grips with his current position, his current situation, and what the right decision would be. I talk all the time about the Jim Millers and Andre Arlovskis of the world that have decided, I want to continue competing, but I know that I'm not at this level anymore. I need to take a step back. Tony Ferguson isn't taking step back steps back of his own volition. They are happening because he cannot win fights and he's getting finished in these fights. Now, if you want to throw the Nathan Diaz fight out and say short notice came together in a weird way, that one doesn't count. Fine. He got kicked in the jaw by Michael Chandler, the fight before that and face planted. I don't care how good he looked in the first five minutes. That fight was enough for me to be like, I don't need to see it anymore. I don't want to see this guy that was the absolute best, the 1B to Khabib's 1A for a number of years, continue to go out there and get beat up because someone won't, won't save him from himself, won't protect him from himself. That's what this feels like. He's going to go out there. We talk about this all the time, right? These athletes aren't going to sit on that stool in the midst of a fight and say, hey, I'm done. I need you to throw in the towel. They're not going to do it after a fight is done and when they're in camp and still training. Because as Sean, Sean Madden and I talked about on a conversation with yesterday, there's got to be a little bit of delusion. There's got to be a little bit of selfishness that I can always do this. I, I've mentioned it before, not necessarily here, but in different things. I used to talk to Diego Sanchez before all of his fights for stories on UFC.com. And the number of times that man said, I am a win or two away from being in the championship mix was frightening because there was nobody that seemed to go to him and say, no, bro, you're not, you're, you're just not. But that delusion, that belief has to be there or else what else is there? There needs to be a next step for Tony Ferguson. There needs to be an exit strategy. We need to really look at these things. And at a certain point, it falls to the UFC and it falls to athletic commissions. I hope it doesn't get to that point. I hope it doesn't get to the point like it did with Chuck Liddell, where Dana White said, we're just not doing it anymore. I hope it doesn't end that way. I hope somebody intervenes. Welterweight bout, Michael Chiesa versus Kevin Holland. My question is, can Kevin Holland finally win one that really counts? As I said, in reference to Michelle Pejea, we would get to Kevin Holland later. Anybody that has followed my work on Keyboard Kimura over the last couple of years knows that I am not the biggest Kevin Holland fan. I think the hype and attention and love that he got for that winning streak coming out of the pandemic or in the early days of the pandemic, when everything was buckled up, everything was boarded up, and the UFC was the only show in town and he won five fights in eight months, was way overblown. Now, credit where it's due. Healthy enough to go out there and win five fights in eight months, all the credit in the world. But Kevin Holland's wins are as follows. John Phillips, Gerald Mearshart, Alessio DiCirico, Anthony Fluffy Hernandez, Joaquin Buckley, Darren Stewart, Charlie Ontiveros, Jacare Souza, Cowboy Oliveira, Tim Means, and Santiago Ponzinibbio. What's the best one in there? Maybe Ponzinibbio, who feels, as I said earlier, in regards to Michelle Pejea, 
Like he hasn't been the same guy since he came back from his two year hiatus. Understandably, understandably hasn't been the same guy. 36, older, been through some battles, not the same guy. We went way too overboard with the appreciation of him knocking out Jacare Souza off his back. Again, wild finish, but that was end of the line Jacare, not strike force middleweight champion Jacare. And it feels to me like there has been this push because he has a personality, because he likes talking shit, because he likes jumping on IG and Twitter and flapping the gums that we got to make Kevin Holland a thing. We've got to push Kevin Holland forward. But every time he gets to this spot where it's a fight that can propel him to actual, and I I hate that I'm going to use this word, but actual legitimacy as a contender, he falters. Lost to Derek Brunson. Lost to Marvin Vittori. Lost to Wonderboy. We could throw out the Hamzat fight. That was, again, short notice. Jumped in. Kudos to him for saying, I'll do it. Fine. But he's been in this spot and he's come up short. And now he faces Michael Chiesa, who is coming back after more than two years away or almost two years away. Excuse me. In a fight where, look, against exact same as Paya. If you're somebody I have to pay attention to, and I have to talk about as a legitimate contender, then you go out and beat Michael Chiesa on Saturday. You go out and show that you can out-wrestle him, that you could work through the wrestling that's coming, because it's coming. That you could go out and have a strong performance from start to finish, where something doesn't happen. Now, I will give Kevin Holland a little bit of, of leeway here. He broke his hand in the fight with Wonder Boy. Fine. But he's one of those dudes that things always happen, right? He went into that fight and that's a fight that can propel him to to greater heights in the welterweight division. Main event, end of the year, everybody paying attention. It was the Stuart Scott show, the Jimmy V Foundation show on ABC, on ESPN. And instead of going out and making sure that he got a win, he said, we're not going to wrestle at all. We're not going to be on the ground. Let's just stand and strike. And look, it's perfectly fine. If that is the career decision Kevin Holland has made for himself, not going to begrudge him that I appreciate action fighters and people that say, I just want to go out and put a, put a show on for fans. All good. Then we got to stop booking them into fights that mean something. Cause there's a lot of people that watch this guy, follow this guy, like this guy. And every time he gets here, they get excited that I think it's time for our guy. And he doesn't seem to want it as much as other as as people want it for him. So we'll see on Saturday if he wants to take a step forward. Because a win over Kiesa, similar to Pahea and Wonderboy, it means something. We know the value of it. So we're going to see. He's had a lot of years now to work on that grappling, to work on that wrestling defense. And a guy that's a black belt under Travis Luter. Let's see. Stay in the welterweight division, Gabriel Bonfim and Trevin Giles, excuse me. The question is which one of these two is for real. So Bonfim subbed out Munir Laziz in his debut. He's 14-0, all finishes. Got a Von Flu choke submission over Trey Waters on the contender series. Trey Waters subsequently got a short notice call up to the UFC, got a good victory over Josh Quinlan. Trevin Giles stumbled in his welterweight debut, losing to Michael Morales. Has won two straight since. Lewis Kosey, Preston Parsons. The winner of this fight moves forward in the the division. That's just the way it goes. 
two guys that are on little winning streaks, runs of success, have looked good in their last couple of fights, match up, winners takes a step forward. Loser kind of holds steady, maybe takes a little step back. It's a good test. It's a good, interesting pairing for both guys, right? You, you get some understanding. Trevin Giles is one fights at light heavyweight and at middleweight in the UFC. And so if Gabriel Bonfim goes out and beats him, again, it tells me something. It shows us something. That the win over Lizaz wasn't just catching a lucky submission. That the win over Trey, Trey Waters on the Contender Series to get to the UFC wasn't just exploiting a guy that didn't understand what was going on with that choke and held on to the guillotine for no apparent reason. And vice versa. If Trevin Giles goes out and gets a victory and moves to 3-0 in the division, then fine. Because look, a loss to Michael Morales doesn't feel all that bad to me. I like that kid. He's really good. He's really talented. He's on the rise. But we'll see. This feels like one of those fights where we may, regardless of who wins, I have a feeling I'm going to come away from it being a little less impressed with each guy or the winner. Just It just feels that way for me. I, right now, I'm, I'm un, unsure about Bonfim. I haven't been sure about Trevin Giles for a long time. I think there are some IQ issues, some decision-making issues for him inside the octagon, but I want to see it. Maybe he's cleaned that up. Maybe Bonfim is the real deal. Find out Saturday. Move to heavyweight. Derek Lewis versus Marcos Rogerio de Lima. Question for this one. Is Derek Lewis just done? Like, Derek Lewis is one in four in his last five. Hasn't won a fight since December 2021 when he stopped Chris Dacus. He's been finished in each of his last three. Didn't look engaged in the last two where he lost in the first round. He was a contender for a long time, but now he's slumping. He's 38 years old, and anybody that has followed Derek Lewis's career know that knows that he looked at this as a means to provide for his family. It wasn't ever and hasn't ever been a, a passion, a thing that he takes. He takes it more seriously than people think, but it's never been the serious focus commitment that you see of some of these absolute elite talents in this sport. He has gotten by with raw athleticism, freakish power, and just being a great big human being. It wouldn't be surprising to me if he was just done. This is, this is something that happens in this sport, right? Guys are competitive and competitive and competitive. And then all of a sudden they're just not. And he's not losing to bad fighters, right? He lost to Taitu Ivasa. Sergey Pavlovich and Sergey Spivak. Ty has been a top 10 guy since returning from his year off, went on that good run, including the win over Derek Lewis. Sergey Pavlovich is an absolute monster. Sergey Spivak has looked terrific since losing to Tom Aspinall. Good fighters, top 10 fighters. No shame in that. But at 38 years old, are you turning it around? Ironically, Delima is in that same sort of age range, but moving in the opposite direction right now. He's on a two-fight winning streak. He seems like he's putting it together. He seems like he's moving forward and he's, for whatever reason, found success as of late. So it's going to be interesting to see the, the crossing of the paths here, the, the intersecting of the two different roads for these two different fighters. And we're going to find out if Derek Lewis loses this one. And I don't, again, I don't say this stuff easily, but I want to be honest. I want to be transparent. I want to be genuine in my thoughts and in my assessment of this stuff. 
if he loses this one, he's it's kind of the telling that he's done. He may continue to fight, but he's not Derek Lewis anymore. He's not the Black Beast anymore. He's just Derek Lewis, UFC heavyweight. That's going to go out there. Could still beat people. Can still land bombs. Still carries that power. It's the last thing to go. He will have it when he's a 65-year-old man. But we're going to find out if he wants to be and is still capable of being a top 15 fighter on Saturday. Move to middleweight. Roman Kopilov versus Claudio Hibero. This one's for Ian O'Neill. Hey! Question is, which is the real Roman Kopilov? So an 0-2 start in the UFC for Kopilov. Losing to Carl Roberson by submission. And Albert Duraev. 2-0 since. Knockout win over Alessio DeKirico. TKO of Punahele Soriano last time out where he looked absolutely phenomenal. All squared up, two and two in the UFC. So for me, this feels like the reset point. This feels like, okay, we're back to level. You're coming off good wins. Now you got to show me who you are. Is this a point where you keep rolling forward? You keep posting good victories. And those first two were just jitters, getting acclimated, got out wrestled, training camp was ridiculous that we don't know about. Like, were there reasons? Or... Were these last two fights the anomalies? Or is it somewhere in between? I have no answers to that. I don't know the answers. Claudio Hibero is a good matchup here. He can crack a little bit. He can grapple a little bit. It's a good measuring stick fight. Kapilov looked so good against Puna. So good. We're going to see what he looks like on Saturday. And if, if what he looked like against Puna Soriano is the real version of Roman Kapilov is, is carried over into this fight. He quickly becomes somebody that I'm interested in at middleweight. Back to welterweight, Jake Matthews versus Darius Flowers. My question is which Jake Matthews are we going to get? Similar to Kapilov in that I just, I never know what to count on when Jake Matthews steps in the cage. Two fights back, he absolutely styled on Andre Fialu when Fialu was on that run, right? And I think again, we probably put a little bit too much into a couple of first round wins over guys that didn't register victories in the UFC. But Jake Matthews looked absolutely outstanding. That was one of those fights in Singapore, UFC 275, where I sat watching it as somebody that talked to Jake Matthews from the time he was 19 years old and thought, man, this kid is finally putting it together. He's always been a big athletic, tough kid. Now he's getting it all set. He looked so sharp. Last fight out. He couldn't avoid power shots from Matt Semmelsberger. He dropped a unanimous decision. Didn't look great. Not great. Not great. Not great, Bob. I just don't know. He's one of those, he's one of those fighters that you could tell me he shows up on Saturday and looks absolutely phenomenal and goes out in styles on Darius Flowers, who is a contender series alum who hasn't ever been anywhere near this level, hasn't faced anyone near. Jake Matthews' level, but has some power. Doesn't mind going into the fire and firing off those hands. He could look, Jake Matthews could go out. You could tell me he could look amazing. But if you told me that he looks terrible and he loses this fight, I wouldn't surprise me either. He, it's literally a coin flip. This is a short notice opponent making his UFC debut at altitude. You've been in there 15 times. 
this is one of those fights where if you, if you've got anything in you to be a emerging talent in this division, because Jake Matthews is still only 28, which is crazy. If you've got it in you to go forward and move forward and potentially put together a late career, later in your career run, this is where it starts. These are the kinds of fights that Jake Matthews has to go out and dominate if he wants to be looked at as somebody with some upside and some room to grow in the division. If this is tough or if this is a loss, then you then you just can't ever count on Jake Matthews going forward. Move to flyweight, CJ Vergara and Vinicius Salvador. My question is, can Vergara find some consistency? So I want to give him a pass for the loss to Tatsuro Tyra because Tatsuro Tyra is a stud, even though he didn't look great against Edgar Chirez last time out. But he got clipped and had to rally last time against Daniel Daniel Lacerda. And he's been inconsistent so far. He's 2-2 two and two in the UFC. It's been loss-win, loss-win. He is the far more skilled, far more technical fighter here against Salvador, who prior to winning, prior to getting on the contender series and beating Shannon Ross in a competitive kind of back and forth fight, the last guy he fought before that was making his debut. So this is one of those fighters. And I don't say this disparagingly to the nation. It happens everywhere. He's one of those Brazilian dudes that was fighting weekend warriors and guys that said, I want to be a fighter or somebody's nephew that got pulled into the cage beat them up, built a sh built a shiny record, and then went out, beat Shannon Ross when he had appendicitis, and it was closer than probably it should have been, and then lost his debut to Victor Altamirano. And again, a competitive close fight, but that tells me more about Altamirano and his limited upside than Salvador and where he is. This feels like very similar to the Jake Matthews thing a little bit, though to a lesser degree. If Vergara is somebody that is going to have consistent success and a future in this division. Then this is where it starts to shine through. This is where you start to build off that second round finish last time out off that split decision win over Cledson Rodriguez off being in the cage, even with Tatsuro Tyra and feeling what it's like to be in there with a top 15 guy or one of the best prospects in the division and in the sport. If he can't win this one, Again, similar to Matthews. If this is one that gets away from you, that tells us something. That tells me all I need to know about the 32-year-old Pete Spratt trainee. Back to welterweight again, Matthew Semmelsberger and Uros Medich. My question is, will Medich make a splash at welterweight? I liked him a great deal as a lightweight. Picked him to beat Jalen Turner in the one fight that he has lost in his career. Looked good last time out in May 2022 against Omar Morales. Contender Series alum, trains at King's, M King's MMA, good size, good frame to hang with welterweights. I love the weapons that he brings to the table. Love the kicks, love the array of kicks. Semi's a good test. He's a tough out, got power, but there's some experience and, and IQ gaps in terms of how to put everything together and how to play to his strengths best. This is one of those, let's see. I don't know for sure whether this is a permanent move for Medich or if this is just taking an opportunity that presents itself either way it's a very interesting fight and it's a very good opportunity Semmelsberger to me is in that second 15 
probably towards the back end of it, but he's in that group. And if you go out on short notice at altitude and beat that guy who hasn't been finished in the UFC, who's always been in close, competitive, hard-fought battles, that puts you in that mix right away. And then we're looking at solid options going forward. And then it makes that loss to Jalen Turner, which has aged very nicely. Now that the tarantula is in the top 15, look even better. Because now it's like, okay, maybe I was just in the wrong division. I got caught by this guy that is a ranked fighter at lightweight. Away we go. Even if he goes back to lightweight, a win at welterweight this weekend over a tough guy like Semi increases his stock. This is a not quite no-lose situation, but this is a high upside play for Uros Medic. Really looking forward to seeing him back out there. Like what he brings to the table. Want to see what he can do here in his welterweight debut. UFC 291 opener, Miranda Maverick versus Priscilla Cashuera in the flyweight division. The question is, can Maverick make a statement? First and foremost, Priscilla Cashuera has to make weight on Friday in order for them to get into the octagon on Saturday. And that's not a guarantee. She missed last time out. The fight got scrapped. Not even sure why she is back here getting another opportunity at flyweight. She has struggled in this weight class repeatedly. But for Miranda Maverick's sake, I am knocking on wood that everything goes well for Cashuera on the scale throughout the week and on the scale on Friday. As for Maverick, 26 years old, 11 and five overall, four and three in the UFC. She's fallen behind that pack of ascending talents at 125 pounds. Aaron Blanchfield is at the front of that. She is the vanguard of that group. Macy Barber has continued to look very good. Natalia Silva continues to look very good. Jasmine Jazdavisius moved into that group by defeating Miranda Maverick out here a few weeks back at UFC 289. She is a good athlete. I like the skills, but I need to see the application of it all, the totality of it all. I keep thinking back to that Sabina Mazo win where she looked so good coming off consecutive losses, coming off the loss to Aaron Blanchfield, where she just got out hustled the whole way along. And I never had a problem with that loss, but it was important to me to see that rebound fight. And she looked amazing. It was her first fight, first full training camp with Elliot Marshall. She followed that with a win over Shanna Young, which didn't go quite the way I expected it to. And now she lost to Jazz last time out. So this feels a little bit like a, not a must win, but a you took this fight on short notice. You wanted to make this quick turnaround and, and get that sour taste of being out here in Vancouver at 289 out of your mouth. Let's see it. Because for all the struggles Cashwara has had on the scale, she's four and one in her last five. She can crack a little bit. If you're not careful, she'll pop you. And then you're looking up at the stars going, what did I do? What, what just happened? Coming into this year, I thought Miranda Maverick was going to go on a little run and get herself into the top 15 and really put herself alongside Barber and Casey O'Neill and Natalia Silva and that group of women. Instead, she's taken a step back and, and ceded her position to Jasmine Jazdavisius. This is a chance to not quite get it back, but put herself back in there a little bit more. That's all the questions. That's all the fight card. It feels really short, but it's because last week there were 15 fights. That's, that's the thing I'm telling myself as I look and we're at about 40 minutes here, that it's not crazy 
It's just that there's not 15 fights. I hope this has got you a little more interested in some of the other matchups taking place on Saturday. I look forward to speaking with you throughout the week. Be back tomorrow with 10 things, the double dip on Friday with the betting show and the punch drunk predictions. As always, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Spencer Kite. You can see it in the lower left-hand side of the screen if you are watching on YouTube. Follow the guys at One Bone Brand on Twitter and Instagram as well, onebonebrand.com. Limited drop today, a new pair of everywhere pants, plaid, little pink to them. They look good. Going to have to go and cop some, not going to lie. Going to go and grab some. New tees, new blush Michael out. Bunch of good stuff. Check out the Keyboard Kimura Substack by that, scanning that QR code. If you are watching on YouTube, if you are not, spencerkite.substack.com for everything we put out. Subscribe for free for $5 a month for 50 bucks for the year. You get everything as soon as I hit publish, except for the stuff that goes behind the paywall that you got to pay for. Love you. Appreciate you. Every single one of you that subscribes means the world to me. Thanks everybody for tuning in and checking out this show, for checking out a conversation with Sean Madden yesterday. Lots of good feedback about it. It means the world to me. I hope you guys understand and believe that when I say it, that it genuinely fills me with, with positive feelings and a ton of love means the world to me. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for all your kind words. Take care of yourselves. Take care of one another. Enjoy the rest of the week. See you tomorrow for 10 things. Peace.